You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is number 111, and I am Nathan Gilmore, an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined this fine morning by Dr. Michael Farmer, who is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. I guess. (laughs) All right. Uh, long-time listeners are surprised, not at all. Uh, also on the line this morning is Dr. Danny Anderson from Emmanuel College. I've heard that's a fine school there in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Danny, how are you doing this morning? I'm uh, hanging in there. I'm trying to think of something more clever to say than that, but it's early. So It, it is early. Yeah. I mean, even in the eastern time zone, of course, Michael <laughs> is our long-suffering Minnesota guy uh, up and recording uh really quite early in the morning. So if you are listening to this, oh, listeners in the afternoon, just remember we're not recording in the afternoon. Actually, uh, I actually have more energy when we record in the morning and when we record in the afternoon. So, Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, well, we got a fascinating email uh, since last week. Uh, and, of course, you know, this is responding largely to episodes from two weeks ago or further because of this semester's recording schedule. But uh, this email is from a Nicholas Bamber, uh, who self-identifies as the mad humanist, and in parentheses, secular variety. Uh, Dear Christian humanist, literature-appreciating variety, I am really enjoying your podcast. Like a puffer fish, it creates a wonderful tingling sensation in my brain. But if you were to cut back on the scholarly erudition and turn up the Christianity, it would most likely leave me writhing on the pavement, and passersby would have to consider whether to call for an ambulance or attempt an exorcism. And it only gets better from there, folks. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole email because it's fairly lengthy. But among other things going on, uh, Mr. Bamber explores the the roots of secular humanism. Uh, you know, talks about how you know it seems to be the development of the word, but he's not sure whether he should, uh, you know, just take that as the evolution of language, or whether he should apologize to us on behalf of all secular humanist for stealing the word from us and Erasmus. Uh, and then, you know, finally he ends with this fun little question. I'll, I'll toss it to you guys, see if you have an answer. I've got a brief one if you don't. Uh, finally, I would appreciate if you could state your opinion on whether William of Ockham genuinely believed in Christianity. I understand his arguments might generally be described as skeptical, but that he was scrupulously careful to distance himself from them and loyally affirm his loyalty to Christian doctrine at the end, this strikes me as protesting too much. Do you guys have any exposure to Occam at all, other than the oft-quoted Occam's razor? No, I've never read Occam, I'm afraid. All right. I'll have to punt. All right, well, I I actually have read some Occam, and I actually uh, discuss him, uh, not at length, but I I do treat him briefly in my dissertation. Uh, And I would say, uh, Nicholas, that what you got with William of Ockham is someone who radically transforms the shape of Christian theology. And I would argue, and I'm, I'm influenced by Richard Weaver on this point, uh, that William Ockham is one of the figures responsible for giving atheists a God not to believe in. Uh, you know, if you ask, or let me put it this way, in conversations with atheists that I have had, so I'll, I'll limit the sample size here, uh, a lot of times when I ask them to describe who or what God is, uh, they will describe to me not something that Augustine would recognize, not necessarily something even that Thomas Aquinas would recognize, but something more like William of Ockham's God, namely uh, an om- omnipotent uh, will uh, that can do arbitrarily what it will, and you know, which by its actions defines what good and evil are. Uh, that is voluntarism in theology 
And really, I mean, although there were certainly antecedents to William of Ockham, uh, he really developed that systematically. And that trend in theology, I would say, unfortunately, there are people who will disagree with me, uh, tended to characterize a lot of the Enlightenment's protests uh, against, I guess, philosophies of God, to, to, to reach for a phrase there. So, uh, good question, Mr. Bamber. Thank you for writing. Uh, thank all of you for writing in. There have been some other folks who have written in with ideas for future episodes. We'll try to take those into account. Uh, Michael, is there anything especially interesting on Facebook or the blog this week that you want to highlight or do you want to move on to the subject matter? Uh, as much as I enjoy getting Facebook messages from fans, I can never remember them afterwards. So uh, Okay, all right. No. <laughs> so I'm sorry to everybody who wrote on our Facebook page this week. Uh, we, we should mention, I mean, we... We mentioned this in the episode that went up today, but the the Christian feminist podcast is now a thing, and is now happening. So, and they already have <laughs> yes. more, they already have more and listeners than the profile show. So, all right. Well, I I've, I know for a fact that there are at least two students at Emmanuel College listening to it. So, uh, my hope is that that show will grow in listenership, and we can get lots more episodes down the line. Um, yeah, that's actually what I was going to pitch next, Michael, but you beat oh, me sorry. to the punch. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, a concept that alternately has uh, been mocked by the three of us. Uh, but if I'm honest, it also means that uh, it's also a term, rather, that I have deployed in conversation, sometimes uncritically, sometimes with an eye to the history of philosophy behind it. Uh, the term on the table today, good listeners, is authentic or authenticity. Uh, now, Danny, I'm going to start today's conversation not with history, but with grammar. Uh, authenticity has its roots in the Greek autos, uh, which is a reflexive pronoun. Uh, now, we all know that a word's etymology is never the end of the story, but it can set some groundwork and maybe give us a beginning to this story. Uh, so, Danny, talk a little bit about, in grammar terms, what is a reflexive pronoun and how that bit of grammatical lore can set the table for a conversation about authenticity. Okay, sure. Um, first of all, beginning a conversation with, with grammar is, is bold, Gilmore, I have to say. This is, uh, <laughs> this is a way to suck the, the listener in, I know. But uh, uh, the reflexivity of it this, seemed fitting. <laughs> the reflexivity of the term, though, is is important. I think because uh, it refers back to the self, and so the receiver of an action is the same sort of entity, I guess, as the doer of that same action. And so, um, an autobiography, for example, is <clears throat> derived from the same term autos, um, and it's a story about the self told by that same self. And so, um, our conversations of authentic and authenticity, uh, is grammatically rooted in something that I think, um, expands on through the whole rest of the conversation. So it actually is a really um, interesting place to start. I don't know that I can talk for five minutes about this, uh, concept, but, uh, it seems to, it does seem to predict the way that the word is sort of employed. Um, uh, it's typically, it roughly equates to a state of, uh, being or action that is supposedly, reflective of or reflexive of and reflective of an accurate representation of one sort of uh, essential being. And so when people talk about being authentic, very often there is a notion that there is a, a true uh, concept to be uh, communicated to the outside world. And so uh, I think that that is part of the, the trouble with using this term um, like thoughtfully, but it's also um, um, rooted right in the grammar of the term. Mm -hmm. Michael, would you add anything to that grammar discussion? No, indeed. In fact, I didn't know that's where authenticity came from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think Danny, I mean, really summed it up nicely. About the only thing that I would add is that, you know, when we talk about authenticity in terms of, I guess, ethics, I, I wouldn't say morals, but when we talk ethically about authenticity, I mean, it seems to assume, just like Danny said, that uh, that one's self-concept, in other words, the, one that, the way that one thinks about oneself, uh, should be really identical with the self that one projects to the world. Uh, so in other words, you know, if there is a disconnect between 
the way that you present yourself to others and the way that you exist for others on one hand, and then the way that you think about yourself on the other hand, uh, then at that point you become inauthentic. So, uh, so inauthenticity so. is a species of hypocrisy? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. And of course, well, I mean, all, all of these questions are going to loop back on each other, but I mean, that seems to be something that uh, really starts to load the word down later on in the ball game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I just wanted to start there, start talking about, you know, where the roots of the word are, where the grammar is. Uh, but when I, Oh, go ahead, Danny. Well, I, last night I, I actually went to the library here at Emmanuel and, and drug out the OED and, uh, hey, and, hey. and <laughs> I know, I know, I know dictionary.com states that blah, blah. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but it does sort of, uh, this, the definition now, this is apart from the grammar does sort of, uh, root itself in uh, conceptions of art being sort of uh, by the hand of the actual maker, or is it a, a false reproduction of that right. sort of thing too? Right. So yeah, no, that's good. That's good because I mean the the adjective authentic. You're absolutely right. Uh, is first and foremost the opposite of forgery. Mm-hmm. So that also plays into it. Uh, so I mean we got a little bit of grammar, got a little bit of history. Let's talk a little bit of philosophy, Michael. When I start moving from the grammatical discussion to the philosophical with the concept of the authentic. Uh, Heidegger's being in time is about the best place I can think of to start. Uh, We've done an episode on that book in general. Uh, Listeners can go back to it. It's received some praise from Chris Garrett's and others. Uh, But zoom in a little bit, Michael, on the construction own most in Macquarie's translation of the book and tell us a bit about one's own most demise and how it relates to authenticity and while you're in the neighborhood if you want to give us a side note on the difference between authenticity and genuineness uh that would be even better so go to town michael okay uh own most as the as the word implies suggests that which belongs to the fullest extent to dasein in other words what makes a particular dasein that dasein right and dasein we should say for people who haven't listened to the Heidegger episode, is Heidegger's, really the word he uses instead of self. He doesn't care for the word self because self leads to all sorts of Cartesian ruminations. Uh, Dasein means their being, being there. And so it, it suggests an existence in the world instead of just, there's no I think, therefore I am in Heidegger. Instead you have Dasein. And, and if something is own most, it is what makes that Dasein different from all the other Dasein. Is that, is that about accurate? Sounds about right. So, for Heidegger, death is the most important, ownmost structure in Dasein. In other words, your death is the one thing that you don't share with anyone else. Nobody else can do anything about it. Uh, somebody put a Onion article in my faculty mailbox yesterday that said, Existentialist firefighter delays three deaths. that's a that's a that's a very heideggerian notion right because because the idea is you can't actually stop somebody from dying all you can do is put it off for a while because that death is the thing that belongs to you it is perhaps the only thing that belongs to you and and this is why for heidegger authenticity authenticity requires being towards death a, a an actual understanding and orientation toward your own death right mm-hmm. so uh in that sense that that is what makes dasein authentic or you know inversely inauthentic and so for heidegger to be authentic is to live out of dasein and to be inauthentic is to live out of the world around you mm-hmm. um now it's different from genuineness because well we'll take a stab at this anyway heidegger says <laughs> heidegger says authentic dasein can be both genuine and or not and, uh, or in, in genuine, ungenuine, whatever the opposite of uh, yeah. genuine is. Works for me. And, and what he seems to be getting at here, um, when he talks about genuineness, a person is genuine is if he is seeking the truth. So for Heidegger somehow, and I couldn't quite get my head around this, frankly, <laughs> somehow it's possible to be living out of yourself, living authentically, uh, living toward death, and yet not be seeking the truth. Mm-hmm. But because he gives, there's a, you know, scarcity of examples 
Oh, and, heavens and, is there and, ever. <laughs> and Heidegger. Uh, it, it is difficult for me to say exactly what he means by that or exactly what that would look like on a concrete level. Mm-hmm. About the only thing I'd add to that, Michael, is that, I mean, for Heidegger, you can be genuine and be genuinely inauthentic. Right. Uh, so, in other words, what he wants to be careful of is not to say that uh, everyone is a hypocrite, to hark back to an earlier Socrates Cafe at Emmanuel College. <laughs> uh, you can be entirely convinced yourself that you are being, uh, that you are uh, living and acting with integrity. Uh, and yet you are living in a way that accords with sort of societal expectations uh, and most importantly, a, a sort of deferral of one's own demise, right? Uh, and let me translate that a little bit because it's hard to talk for 17 seconds about Heidegger without slipping into jargon. Um, <laughs> so he talks about, you know, the he talks about death and the way that most people talk about death and relate to death as a disease that you're afraid that you might catch someday. And he says that, you know, you can live that way without being a hypocrite, but ultimately you are not taking a stand in the face of your own demise. And therefore, you know, you can be genuinely inauthentic. Um, right. And yeah, in fact, that, you may not even realize in your genuineness that you are being inauthentic. Precisely. Precisely. So it's not a matter of consciousness uh, it is a matter of fairly objective evaluation, really. Uh, and in, the, in that respect, I mean, Heidegger is very, very Aristotelian, right? Aristotle isn't really all that concerned about whether you think you're courageous or not. He's concerned about whether you are, in fact, courageous in the Nicomachean Ethics. So, I, the, the more I read Heidegger, the more I think of him as an atheist Catholic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Say a little bit more about that because that's, I mean, that's his, a good term. His entire his ent I hate the word, but his entire worldview just seems to be Augustinian in, in almost every way it can be, except that he doesn't believe in God. So he uses all these Augustinian categories, all the, and and I think he's getting at Aristotle through Augustine, and then he um and then mm. he just you know kind of secularizes them. So so if if you're hearing when Nathan's ta uh, describing this a a religious description i think you're right to hear that i think heidegger is in his way one of the great religious thinkers well it's fascinating in a uh, critical theory class that i took in grad school we read uh, uh heidegger's essay on hegel's uh phenomenology of of uh spirit there we go uh and in there he actually takes a side swipe at the german theology of the 19th and 20th centuries and he says someday i'm gonna write a Christian theology so these theologians can learn how to write it. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, um, the first rule of my theology will be that no one's allowed to use the word being. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, you know, that, that's fun to speculate, you know, what if this, you know, atheist Nazi wrote a Christian theology, but, you know, that's, what are you going to do with that, right? Um well, at any rate, I, I want to get some some spectrums of vocabulary uh, in here because authentic, of course, is not a word that has a singular definition. Uh, the most interesting words seldom do. So to get another constellation of jargon mixed in here, Danny, uh, I want you to tell us about another pair of terms, uh, not authentic and genuine, but authentic and sincere. And I want you to tell us about uh, how Lionel Trilling <laughs> uses them. From what you've heard in the previous Heidegger conversation, uh, where is their common ground between the two vocabularies? Where's their departure? And while you're in the neighborhood, what's Trilling's main argument against authenticity as sort of an ultimate term in ethics? Well, for, let me get to the last question uh, about Trilling's sort of stance on the issue at the end. But I, I do see some common ground or hear some common ground. Uh, in the discussion of Heidegger, when you have this sort of binary of these two terms, um, because Trilling does sort of set it up as this sort of opposition between the way that society has conceived of this concept in two ways. In one way, he describes as sincere sincerity, and the other way, um, over time and, and through the development of modernity. Um, and he particularly looks uh, for this kind of dividing point in Hegel. Um, uh, into something called authenticity. And uh, the, uh, the notion of existence in the world, I think that, that Michael's pointing out, is an interesting um, 
carry over in, into these into this other uh, binary as well. And I think that the it's sort of thinking about relationships versus oppositions. And Trilling's kind of opening metaphor for this is an exploration of Polonius's uh, famous speech in Hamlet, when he says, "To thine own self be true, and thou won't be." You won't be false to any man. And he sort of takes exception with the reading of that, that it's just part of Polonius's like uh, scandalous, duplicitous sort of character. Uh, But it's actually getting at a larger concern in the play about how one is sincere towards other people. And so to be true to the self, this is sort of that reflexive pronoun of coming into play here again. Is to achieve is to aspire to some common sense of the good, and and then if one is able to um, aspire to that correctly, you will by definition be true to those around you. And so this for Trilling is actually a very sincere um, speech by by Polonius, and uh, and a kind of his uh, opening definition of uh, sincerity as as a term. Um, which for him sort of exists in a world which is there was thought to be a true, almost divine nature to which humans might aspire. Um, and to do so is to be sincere. And it's also therefore implied that sincerity is hand and it goes in hand in hand with the performance of social roles. And so our uh, sincerity and our uh, aspiration to truth then is the kind of uh, performance of social roles within these sort of uh, this larger social stage. And, and at one point or not at a point, but there's a gradual development that this is sort of a literary history. If you want to think of it in that way, um, authenticity becomes uh, preeminent in, in kind of the social imagination. And, and it takes, and it takes precedence in a world that sees the self not so much in an actor to actor relationship, but the self as in absolute opposition to anything external. Uh, and that's, that's a key distinction. Therefore to be uh, authentic then is to resist those roles that the stage is sort of thrusting upon you. So there's a bit of a kind of a libertarian undergirding to this. Um, and so instead of, um, existing, um, in, a matrix of relationships of social roles, you sort of, uh, the authentic then authenticity is something that is underneath and behind these social roles. Um, and Trilling, uh, this is a, it's sort of a basic outline, but he sort of ends with the kind of absolute, uh, apotheosis of, uh, of authenticity for him is Freud's deconstruction of uh, the subconscious where you sort of not only is the inauthentic outside of the self, but it's actually incorporated within the self. So it's taking that, that fragmentation internally. Um, in one, in some ways I was reminded of, uh, last, last week's conversation about Thoreau and King, the sort of difference between Thoreau's withdrawal from the public sphere. That seems to me, even though it kind of takes place in the opposite time periods, uh, a much more, uh, move of authenticity than King's sincerity, which is sort of the engagement with the, um, the culture. And so if that's a, a way to kind of think about it in terms of what we've been discussing and, but, uh, Nathan, as for his argument, I don't really see it as so much as a polemic. Um, it, it, he doesn't necessarily rail against the idea of authenticity. Uh, what, uh, he's just sort of tracing it as a historical development and, and he's sort of largely tracing it through literature and it's kind of a, a tour de force this book sincerity and authenticity is uh the references that he's got at hand is kind of staggering and, and really a, a little bit humiliating to read um someone with a mastery of such a, a vast um uh, uh, knowledge of literature and culture but you definitely in the context of his other work can i tell that he sort of i think prefers the notion of sincerity uh the, that that sort of social role um, basically there, if you read his other work where he talks about thick and thin cultures and, and how ha- existing in a thick culture, like the British society, uh, gives the self something to sort of bat up against and, uh, and, and allows it to, uh, uh, create more interesting culture essentially, as opposed to American culture, which he sees as sort of thin. Um, and he goes back to Henry James to sort of argue these notions. So, uh, 
in the context of his larger body of work, I think that you can sort of see a preference. But this book doesn't necessarily argue for one or the other. So it's kind of like Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, where the stance yes. is, I'm not going to argue for any of these five or four, however many there are. But most readers get the strong sense that Christ transforming culture is the best one. In, in some sense, yeah. If you, if you read closely, I mean, you don't definitely have to take that away in order to appreciate the book. But uh, if, okay. you, if you sort of understand his larger project, it, it's kind of clear where he stands. And, and it sort of is published in 1970 or 71, early 70s, and I mean, not long before he died. And it, it can easily be read as sort of a, a, a theoretical attack on the rise of the new left um, uh-huh. as a kind of displacement of the old left which i like it already yeah (laughs) well (laughs) i've not read this book so i mean it's a fascinating discussion danny i mean one of the things i'm hearing is that trilling's account of the authentic seems to assume a kind of self that would be unintelligible to heidegger because for heidegger the self is always thrown or projected onto the world and therefore you know we don't get to uh, pretend that we have a self that is separate from the expectations that constitute the self. Hmm. So I, you know, it's, I, and I, I didn't anticipate talking about this in this discussion, but that's part of the fun of having these conversations. Uh, but it seems like, you know, the, the grammar of it, the one self character, uh, really relies on certain conceptions of what a self is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking of a similar uh, topic as I was thinking about this last night, uh, going back to a couple of weeks to the country music um, episode, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about um, uh, authentic uh, uh, you know, country music. Sure. And I really think that in the trilling schema, uh, sincere would have been a better sort of term. Uh, right. Because I, I feel like it, it, it would sort of like the music we were sort of uh, – putting up as, as better was something that aspired to a social role that uh, uh, was set before it instead of... Oh, like, sure, sure, sure. You know. Well, and that's the other thing that's fascinating about this. And again, I, Michael, I don't know how much trilling you've read. I've read very, very little. Uh, but, you know, when I hear the word sincere, I'm usually, uh, my mind goes back to sort of undergraduate poetry classes uh-huh. uh, where people, you know, <laughs> held up certain poets as better than others. Writing because, from the heart. Exactly, exactly. That's that's the connotation of sincere I had in mind. And it seems to be just the opposite when Trilling uses it. He seems to invert uh, that that notion of sincere and says, no, sincere means to situate oneself within a larger historical movement. Yes, and and he explicitly in this book points to Wordsworth as a, a as a kind of a predictor of this uh, shift. Um, uh-huh. Although uh, as someone who is this kind of isolated or at least at least presents himself as a sort of isolated genius. Sure. Um, of not necessarily in conversation with an audience in the, at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, again, that's, that's exactly what I think of when I think sincere, but I mean, in his terminology, it makes perfect sense that that's, better named as authentic, right? Because, I mean, it assumes a, a, an ability to locate oneself beyond the historical. Yes, and this is where he sort of talks about he- uh, Hegel, I'm sorry, as the sort of uh, defining moment in this shift, I think. So. Okay, fascinating. Uh, Michael, would you add anything to what Danny's brought to us? I, I have not read that book, so while I was interested to hear what Danny has to say, I don't really have anything to add to it, I'm afraid. Other, other, I guess, I guess the notion that a type of music could be authentic is a little silly, right? Because you would need a self to be authentic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and music doesn't really have a self. Right, right, right. That's why I was. I, I think that we were sort of mis uh, misusing that term a couple of weeks ago <laughs> when we were talking about country music. I felt like we were sort of using the wrong term. So interesting. Well, Michael, I, I want to shift to some more recent ideas now that we've got some philosophical conversations in the background, uh, where you and I often joke about the cult of the authentic, and we do so as often as we can. Uh, it's in the sort of postmodern evangelicalism of the 90s uh, that gave rise to the emergent movement of the George W. Bush era. Uh, Michael, given what we've said and heard relative to Heidegger's concept of authenticity, 
and Trilling's naming of the same as a sort of flight from history and taking into account the particular hangups of 90s postmoderns. And be careful here, Michael, because you're talking to one. Uh, <laughs> talk to us for a minute about the shape of authenticity uh, as a term of critique among the disaffected youth ministers in, in my age cohort. Well, it is, a, it is definitely a God term among that group of people. And, and like a lot of God terms, it is very rarely defined. So people hold up authenticity as, as a kind of thing to aspire to without exactly saying what authenticity is, at least in the things I've read. Mm-hmm. So I could, I could be missing something huge, I don't know. What it seems to be, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to Shakespeare here. Uh, Edgar at the end of King Lear says we ought to we we should speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's really getting at what that group of people means by the word authentic. It, it is something opposed to empty dogmatism, empty ritual. If if it, you you should you should do what expresses what is inside of you i suppose instead of going along with the conformity of the outer world and there's something to be said for that right because uh you know to to a real extent perhaps pretending to believe something you don't believe is sheerest hypocrisy mm-hmm. um although as we discussed in i think the martin luther episode it could be that pretending to believe something you don't believe makes you believe it <laughs> so I, I would I would complicate that, and it's interesting you would bring postmodernism into this because I would think I would think that postmodern postmodernism, as any kind of coherent philosophy, would shatter the notion of authenticity mm-hmm. because it shatters the notion of the self. Right, right. And and and, and so th- that word that God term authenticity in nineties um, postmodernism, as you put it, and in the emergent church, I, I I think it's this weird residue from an earlier way of thinking. That that becomes incoherent when combined with some of the other assumptions of the uh, of the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I I think of the sort of well, I mean really the carryover from sort of the big postmodern titles of the eighties, uh, where you're absolutely right. I mean you know the idea is that uh, it's a rediscovery of the rhetorical, a rediscovery of the constructed character of human knowledge. Uh, but yet, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's this, I guess, residual or vestigial clinging to, uh, oh, I, I don't know what to call it. I mean, other than authenticity, because that's what the episode is. But, you know, <laughs> this idea that, you know, the older generation, because this is always in conflict with the older generation, uh, are somehow hypocritical in the way that the younger generation will always and forever elude uh, and, you know, I mean, the, there's definitely a moralism to it. That's without a doubt. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, if you pay attention to your Foucault and your Derrida, uh, at the very least, authenticity should be something that's very difficult to put to words. But, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, in the late 90s and, again, like I said, in the Bush era, uh, people threw around authenticity as a critique of certain inst- institutions uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, there wasn't really a careful examination of what that might mean. Uh, Danny, I, you know, where you and I are roughly the same age. I mean, were you around when people were seeking out authentic community in the late nineties and early aughties? Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that's sort of, um, when I kind of made my own sort of transition from a, a more kind of old line Protestant, denomination um into the world of the non-denominational church basically mm-hmm. and, yeah, and, so, yeah. Yeah, and i think that that is kind of uh um I, I, not that i haven't gone to churches with denominations i just don't have any sort of brand loyalty anymore i suppose <laughs> and, and um i know it's a really crass way of putting it but uh you know what i mean and, and so um yeah so i yeah i definitely is something that uh i have uh uh noticed and increasingly I think, you know, uh, this may be getting into the next sort of topic here, but um, <laughs> uh, increasingly I'm sort of concerned by the kind of shallowness with which we use this term in, in this kind of new setting. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just go ahead and, I mean, talk about some of my own experiences with this for just a minute. But, you know, I, I can very clearly remember 
you know, and uh, and I joked about you know disaffected youth ministers, but that seems to be the cohort that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, this whole idea uh, usually right after a youth minister got fired, frankly, uh, <laughs> that you know the older generations of Christians, usually meaning the baby boomers, uh, you know, were somehow hypocritical in the way that we were not, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and even back then, to some extent, the thought occurred to me, okay, well, maybe there was a power struggle and you lost, dude. Uh, you know, I, you know, let's, let, let's not turn this into a moralistic thing. Uh, but I mean, there was a whole, I remember, especially in the Bush years, I might've just been unaware of it in the nineties. Uh, but a sort a, a whole publishing industry that rose up around this idea that, you know, there was an authentic Christianity out there to be had, uh, if we could just get away from the old institutions and the mega church and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I mean, and, and just about any such movement is easy to make fun of 10 years later, but I, I certainly remember in 2003 seeing a whole mess of those books, and I, <laughs> I'm not entirely proud of this, but I actually have an essay in one of those books, so I have to... <laughs> I, have to <laughs> I, I I have to uh, point three fingers at myself at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that that is a that is a term I used a lot in in college as well. Uh-huh. So it, it's not like I'm innocent. Yeah, and by the way, you can now uh, get that collection of essays, one of which is mine, for ninety nine cents on ChristianBook.com. So nice. that's how much. Uh, how much money do you get from that ninety nine cents? Not sale? not a dang <laughs> thing. I'm I'm just noting that. Uh, what what seemed to be quite big back then it ain't worth much now. <laughs> you, you know what else is interesting is is the language of authenticity reappears in the uh, the young Christians who are turning to the Orthodox Church and to Catholic Church. That is very interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Although I'm more inclined to believe that is authentic Christianity because it doesn't have that heavy overlay of uh, postmodernism on top of it. Uh-huh. And so so the tension between the notion of the authentic and the destruction of the self does not really exist there. Right, right. And no, was, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, and that seems to me almost to kind of retroactively switch uh, Trilling's uh, schema. Uh, and so it's almost like calling what he would call sincere authentic now and sort of almost like right, ret- right. Retro- <laughs> sort of a retrograde definition. there. That's very interesting, Michael. Yeah. Well, Danny, since you're already leaning that way, uh, what starts out as an attempt to subvert uh, often gets taken over by the establishment. Or, uh, as I said in my office the other day, power tends to co-opt and absolute power co-ops absolutely. <laughs> uh, this year, you and I, before the school year started, because we are Emanuel College faculty, read a book by, I would say, an unmistakably establishment evangelical figure. Uh, but the book was all about authentic adulthood and how we should lead our students in that direction. Uh, And in our own college's convocation services, uh, it's not the subversives that are talking about authenticity, but it's the the campus ministers. Uh, So the ultimate term has been, like I said, entirely taken over, I think, or maybe not entirely, but to a large extent taken over by authority figures. Uh, What happened since the 90s that put authenticity in the hands of the man and how would you evaluate such developments? Well, this I have to really, this is one of those topics I could probably be very mean if I wanted to, and I'm really going to try <laughs> not to be, um, because I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything noble in being mean. Um, and so, um, and I want to just, this is purely kind of my own kind of common sense. I have no sort of, uh, you know, sociological, like, grounding for what I'm saying. But I do feel like, if you look again, and my kind of entryway into this is obviously trilling, his uh, definition and identification of that term, authenticity, he largely traces it as, a, uh, as it appears through cultural productions throughout the ages. But um, institutional forces clearly have something to do with the shift. Um, and, and he touches on it in places, but that's, a, that's an opening he leaves open in, in his book. And so... Uh, you have sort of sincerity, sincerity, and its acceptance of sort of stage performances and that sort of thing worked well in a kind of feudal system, and less well in a more fragmented, industrialized world. And and so that that's sort of the institutional shift that kind of gives the gives rise to to, to the shift in 
society at large, Western society at large. Um, and I feel like in the 90s, you see in American Christendom, let's just say, um, a, a bit of a lag. And so uh, I feel like at, for a time, uh, up until like when I was in the 90s, I think the kind of denominational, like local church, um, affiliated denomination church um, was still the main face of American Protestant Christianity. And during that time is when the the shift from that to uh, the more mega church uh, structure happened. And mm. I feel like to me, that mirrors the earlier shift in the society at large, um, and it's at an institutional level. And in some ways, what Michael was saying earlier, um, I think, was predicting what I'm about to say. And so I feel like um, it's almost like a, a rough parallel between those two kinds of cultural shifts. And so um, if you want to think of the denominational church that I grew up in as a kind of more feudal <laughs> image uh, than the one <laughs> that meets in the, the giant auditorium with you know, seven services a Sunday. And so, um, which is much more kind of a postmodern consumerist approach to culture. Um, and so this is, um, the point at which, um, authenticity then becomes hot, like as a term in, in this localized culture. And so for me, um, um, that's kind of the, the common sense sort of reading of the, the institutional shift um, that, you know, lag maybe a century behind the culture at large. But and as for my evaluation of it, um, well, <laughs> uh, too often, I think um, I, I feel like it's become an excuse for sloppiness. Um, and ironically, oh, that's it, good. That's good. <laughs> it, it encourages us to play social roles. And so like, even though it's sort of like uh, in its invocation a way uh it's uh we mean it as uh, an attempt at avoiding um falsehood and, and kind of just falling into uh dogmatic social roles as michael was saying earlier uh when i'm looking around in my mega church and i see people looking for every excuse to weep about things uh th this sort of <laughs> encourages me to sort of play that social role and so i, I think that there's sort of a an unintended irony to our use of that term because it actually comes to mean a certain way of behavior in, in this kind of social stage that is the the uh the megachurch the postmodern emergent sort of church and so um the whole thing you know as christians i can notice that gee it looks like we're supposed to be broken at all times let me you know complain about my, my mommy or something i don't know um i don't mean to sound too mean <laughs> about this but um and, and so this is sort of from some personal experience that I've had in churches um, where, um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, I, I should just leave the conversation at that. So, um. <laughs> what would you add, Michael? Well, one reason I would, I would say that the uh, authenticity belongs to the establishment now is that these were probably the same people who were screaming about it 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, now there's the establishment. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too because I mean it's it's one of those things, uh, and of course this isn't new historically, but where you know the revolutionary party becomes the most counter-revolutionary force in a culture. Uh, you know, I, I think that's definitely what we're seeing there. I, I connect it too, and I and I thought about this after I wrote up the show notes, but uh, uh, Danny, the the faculty de development event that we attended on Friday, where. Uh, you know, one of the speakers, you know, talked about some phenomenon of which he did not approve. And then he said, well, that's religion. Mm -hmm. And I and I have to think that, you know, re yes. religion becoming a dirty word, uh, which we've talked about on this podcast, because I love to obsess about the spotted career of the word religion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is it has to be linked with the rise of authenticity as an ultimate term. Right. Because that it, it implies purely the social role, right? Um, the, the religion has come to mean that, at least, for, for particularly this generation. And so, yeah. Right, that, right. That's where it, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, that, I mean, you know, the, uh, like we were talking about, you know, the people who were supposed to be postmodern 15 years ago, but were actually, you know, parroting this sort of romantic notion of authenticity uh, are the same folks who, don't much like the postmodern critique of authenticity when it's coming from the authority figures. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I mean, I, and again, I, I, and you know, 
right now we're just kind of spewing examples, but I have a hunch we'll we'll start to trace some patterns here. But uh, you know, the idea that you know the the good Christian is the one who doesn't put on masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, I mean, the immediate postmodern critique of that is, you know, uh, show me what you look like when you take off your mask, and I, all I see is the construction of what you think a maskless person should look like. Yes, this is that's a better way of saying what I was trying to say. Absolutely, yes. Well, and, and you know, and and here's the thing. I mean, you know, the po- the postmodern critique would say there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's not as if we can escape construction, uh, if indeed all of human social reality is construction, uh, then we should be evaluating it not in terms of, uh, and now, now I'm talking like trilling Danny. Uh, yeah. we, should, <laughs> we should evaluate it in terms of authentic or inauthentic because uh, authentic is just a construction, carefully constructed so as not to look like a construction. Yes. Yeah, Jonathan Lethem has a great quote, the author of the novelist, Jonathan Lethem. Um, yeah. What is uh, postmodernism except modernism without the anxiety, right? And so I feel like that, that, that's a, <laughs> sort of what you're talking about here. So, I, you know, the, again, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, now uh, authenticity is what's coming from up front rather than coming from the grumbler in the pew. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things I always see these things as opportunities because I'm a rosy colored glass kind of dude. Uh, but I have a great deal of fun. Uh, talking with my students, you know, at, at various levels, whether it be at a, you know, in a freshman writing class or whether it be with English majors, uh, about what it actually means when we badmouth religion and hold up authenticity as ultimate, you know, uh, what does that mean for the actual shape of our existence? Mm. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it's grand fun. So, but a lot of things are grand fun for me at, at the expense of other people's systems. That's, one of my many personality flaws. Well, Michael, you and I both use uh, Scott Kreider's rhetoric textbook, The Office of Assertion. I love that book. We've done an episode on it. Uh, one of the things that it teaches that I like most is that the argument from definition uh, is not something that starts with what Merriam-Webster or heavenhelpusdictionary.com, uh, <laughs> but with a stipulative definition. In other words, a definition that says, not how a word happens to be in use at the moment, but how folks ought to use a word. Uh, so, Michael, I'm going to let you start, and yeah, I have a hunch we'll follow up on each other's uh, definitions. Uh, but after you, we'll go to Danny and then to me. Uh, Michael, stipulate a definition of authenticity that our listeners could entertain as more true than the current popular uses, uh, and tell us why your definition might help us to ask more interesting questions about human existence, or maybe even Christian faithfulness. I'm actually going to define the self instead, and then we will we will maintain that definition of authenticity as being true to yourself. Oh, see, he's being authentic, folks. He's rejecting the conventional <laughs> questions. There you go. Um, so let's do another thing Kreider says to do and begin with a quote, existence precedes essence, <laughs> which I'm sure you everybody knew is where I was going to go. But if, if existence does precede essence, that means you're not really born with this stable, coherent thing called a self. And yeah, this is an idea that postmodernism picks up on, but Sartre's right there at the head um, mm-hmm. positing it, shall we say. So um, what that means is the self is something you both build, and it is built in you by the, uh, the people around you and the things you do and, and all sorts of stuff. So it's both a voluntary and, and involuntary process. But the important thing here is that the self is something that is cultivated, not that so, not something that is given. And that means there's a great deal of what to some people might look like inauthenticity in the construction of the self, especially among young people. And you've all we've all seen this in in college students. These these students who are nothing but a mass of affectations, right? Because they're they're trying to construct themselves. They're trying to figure out what they want to be. And, uh, you know, if, if what you want to be is something different than what you currently are, that means you have to fake it for a while. And uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to suggest, as I did in that Luther episode, that there's nothing necessarily wrong with faking it for a while because what it is is something that is constructed and built by you and by other people and thus... Authenticity means recognizing and admitting that process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could even describe it not as faking it, but as discovering. Right. 
yeah, creating it. But it's going to look like fakery if you're holding to an old-fashioned definition of authenticity in the self. Mm. Hmm. I dig it, man. I dig it. Danny, what do you got? Stipulate for us. Well, that I just want to briefly comment. Michael's that last thing about faking it so much reminds me of a great Bernard Malamud short story, Angel Levine, um, where the kind of central act of faith is of that that story is someone who doesn't really believe it, but just sort of wants. If I say I believe it, then I must believe it. And so that's sort of like a, I think it's a, a great like imaginative example of what Michael's saying there. I think that that's a really great point. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or I, l- let me follow up on that real quick, Danny. Or to, you know, a famous Stan Hauerwas quote: uh, "I have to tell people I'm a pacifist because I'm so damn violent." <laughs> <laughs> and that sets up the expectation that I'm going to be nonviolent, so therefore it forces me to be. Yes, that's interesting. It's an interesting way. Next time I teach that story, I'm going to like try and bring this conversation to that. That's Wait, really which cool. and and this is important. Which is a much better option than saying, "Well, I'm a violent person, and you just have to accept that." Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, and so this is to me like more Trilling's idea of sincerity, though. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, for me, just to kind of recover what's good about the term authenticity and, and to sort of maintain it. Um, I think that as Christians particularly, and let me just aim my response towards that group, um, the, the first part of the title of this podcast um, instead of the <laughs> second, um, but recognize the contingency of human experience. And, and to be authentic um, should mean somehow to recognize what our social role is at any given moment. And I, and I think that that is perfectly in line with existing in a community of believers, um, a, a local community and one that has um, spread across um, history as well. And so I feel like um, any idea of what it is to be authentic in any given moment needs to consider um, our own position in a relationship with other people. And so um, basically because I had a bad week, it doesn't mean I'm obligated to hijack Sunday service and share my authentic feelings about uh, crabs or some sort of sexually transmitted disease or something, you know what I mean? Um, and so, um, rather what kind of bad weeks do you have? <laughs> no, <Danny>? no kidding. <laughs> well, I was using an extreme example for effect. Yeah. You know, so, um, oh, okay. Okay. And one not so removed from a, a church I have attended in the past. And so, um, um, uh, that doesn't mean, um, I should hijack that Sunday service rather I should, the being true to myself then should take place in a much smaller community that respects the the social role that I happen to be occupying at any given moment. And so I think that uh, a bit of uh, reflection on appropriateness uh, is is what might salvage the idea of authenticity. That's that's good because I and you know I didn't even think about these questions when I pose this last one Danny but I mean you all are just hitting some really good things that there are expectations beyond my own subjectivity uh, that are pulling me towards a goodness that you know lies beyond my current state and you know that that whole idea that you know authenticity doesn't mean uh, authentically bad all the time Mm -hmm. that's good that's good uh, I'm, I'm going to, as you guys did, I mean, hark back to some good books. Uh, one of them that immediately co- comes to mind, if you can predict that Michael's going to go to Sartre, you can predict I'm going to go to Alistair McIntyre. Uh, but in After Virtue, he talks about the virtue of constancy. Uh, and it's something that, you know, I, I think ought to be at the core of a, any sort of positive connotation of authenticity for a Christian. In other words, uh, anything that we do uh, ought to be an intelligible element of a longer narrative in which we maintain some sort of constant character. Uh, so in other words, you know, if we do have the bad week or if we do uh, commit an act uh, that is not constant with the conception of goodness that is the best we can do right now, Uh, We should not, you know, go around trumpeting it and parading it in the interest of keeping it real, uh, but rather we should name it as a defect uh, that there, like I said, is something beyond the self uh, that we can point to as goodness and that the self should be pointed towards even when it's not. 
Uh, so I mean, I, I I guess I'm sort of mixing the Heideggerian and I'm mixing the uh, Thomistic there, and you know all sorts of groovy things there as I tend to do. Uh, but you know, I, I guess my I, I can respect a certain kind of authenticity. Uh, but as you know, Danny noted, when it becomes simply an attention-seeking performance uh, for the sake of you know boasting in the in just how authentic I am, I start to lose respect for it. Well, and, and then of course, if it's a performance, it's not authentic in that sense. Exactly. Yeah, I know, and, that, and that's what I'm realizing. <laughs> I, I haven't really escaped the '90s <laughs> because my biggest. Uh, criticism of authenticity is that it's so often inauthentic <laughs> you've fallen um, into the mise on a beam yeah yeah exactly so you're conforming uh, to the non-conformity right well yeah yeah and, and honestly i mean that is uh and again i didn't have the intellectual tools that i have now you know in my mid-30s uh but i still remember being that that 17 year old kid and it suddenly occurred to me one day that everyone who was trying to be a nonconformist looked basically the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I, I remember writing a, a very bad 17 year old poem about, you know, the nonconformity that we get from the TV. Mm-hmm. And mercifully, that poem is lost to history. because frankly there are some things that 17 year olds write that just deserve to be lost and that happens to be one of them even if it's from the heart (laughs) yeah especially because it was from the heart because frankly my heart wasn't much to speak of somebody i I can't remember who said this not not all uh not all sincere poems are bad but all bad poems are sincere (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. I, I've read some ironic postmodern poetry that's pretty wretched. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean, I, and, and that's interesting too. Is that you know, sort of the uh, post sincerity posture is, in my mind, just about as aggravating as uh, performative sincerity. Mm. You know, the the perpetual meh. Yeah. Oh boy, I hate that term. Um, <laughs> I, I, I go crazy whenever I see it on the internet. That, I hate that term. So, you know. Yeah. So, I, in other words, I mean, you know, I at least where I stand, guys. I mean, you can correct me if you will, but uh, you know, I I think that again, self construction is an inevitability of human existence. I think Michael's right. Uh, I think though that Heidegger is also right that self construction uh, that takes a stand on the tradition into which one is thrown is ultimately more authentic, ironic as that may sound, than the one that pretends there is no tradition. Yeah, which I think Michael's observation about um, sort of this post-megachurch movement where people, younger people are sort of flocking to like older traditions for the the kind of ritualistic um, uh, aspects of them, I think that's one of the more interesting observations of this podcast and something to really kind of chew over. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, guys, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because I have I've painted myself into a corner, and I, <laughs> if I keep talking, I'm just going to walk <laughs> through the paint. Um, so I want to thank Danny Anderson. I want to thank Michael Farmer for a good conversation. Uh, Michael, what are you teeing up next week? Uh, actually, a related topic, and you you did a very nice segue uh, for me there at the end, which is uh, we're going to talk about tradition. Ah, very good, very good, excellent. Well, in the meantime, listeners, uh, don't be true to yourself. It only causes trouble. Uh, try <laughs> to be good instead. Uh, if you want to criticize me for saying that or take us to task for anything else we said, uh, you can find us on Facebook under The Christian Humanist. You can find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. You can give us a review at iTunes, and we always appreciate those because it brings more people to our podcast. You can also email us at the Christian Humanist at gmail.com so until next time when we talk about tradition this is Mike no this is not Michael Farmer this is <laughs> I, I've become entirely inauthentic this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and Danny Anderson saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger I think I know what you mean I don't know it's time to be I'll always do my best to understand